0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 136, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Sam Hitchcock-Tilton studies weed control at Michigan State University, where he went to study after two years of pushing a wheel hoe through clay soil on his own farm and more years of working for other farmers. His graduate student work on in-row weed control and vegetable crops has led him to explore the various elements that go into setting up for weed control success. Sam draws on his experience on farms, a visit to Europe to learn about and evaluate precision weed control tools, and his work in his experimental plots to provide insight into more than just the cool tools that make weed control work. We look into the foundations of mechanical weed control, starting with soil preparation and seeding the crop, right through blind cultivation, flame weeding, tool carriers, and selecting the right tools for between-row and in-row weed control. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America, BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by CoolBot by Cold, You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Sam Hitchcock-Hilton, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. So Sam,
0: I'd like to start off by having you tell us about your background and how you got to the point where you were actually doing research on mechanical weed control.
1: Uh, It didn't happen overnight. Um, I got interested in growing vegetables after college for various reasons. And I worked a season on an Amish farm in western Wisconsin. I was very interested in working with horses. Uh, and that was just incredible. Like I need to get with the 21st century. and. So I, um, I worked for Peter Seely over Springdale farm, north of Milwaukee. I grew up in Milwaukee and, uh, that was great. And I mean, Peter, um, he's, he's traveled to Holland. He, he's got an incredible family there and they're quite mechanized. So that was a really good introduction to me, just about all the, all the different things that need to go on, on a vegetable farm, uh, at, at a pretty mechanized scale too. And, uh, I met a partner there and, and we were really, really into doing it, you know, and, uh, so for two years we started a CSA and sold to restaurants and uh I spent a lot of time pushing a wheel hole through uh clay soil and uh and that really got me thinking, you know, about that there had to be a better way to do things. And I I think partly because we we didn't know how to how to mechanize or just really the steps to take. And so after two years we stopped and I managed the educational farm for a little bit and went out to Vermont and uh and the whole time was, was just really enthralled with vegetable growing. I'd, I'd visit farms and, and write articles and just talk to friends about what they were doing. And, uh, and I felt like I wanted to approach it from a, from a more professional standpoint and, and open myself up to, to, um, getting jobs and having health insurance and whatnot. And, uh, so I linked up with a professor here at Michigan State University, Dan Brainerd, and, uh, he had been doing weed research for many years and, uh, and reduced tillage research for many years. And he had a grant and needed someone to look at uh, in-row cultivation tools, tools that take out the weeds in the plant row. And and he was looking at it for um, for reduced tillage systems. And so that was about two years ago now, I believe. And, uh, and I've been here in Lansing uh, since then. And I, I guess I should mention when I was um, farming in Wisconsin, a, a farmer gave me some advice. He said, you know, there's two things that farmers need to learn if you're starting out and no one will tell you this. It's not, you know, going to school or taking soil science classes. You need to learn how to weld and you need to learn how to fix small engines. And I'm still working on the small engine one, but I, I did take welding classes. And so that's, that's been a real help to me in all the work I've I've done since.
0: So your research is on in row weed control. So in other words, that part of the the growing space that actually is the most difficult in which to do the weed control. But my understanding is also that you've had to learn a lot about the between the row weed control to really be able to explore the in row weed control effectively.
1: Yeah. The the in row weed control, you know, we started wanting to just dive in and realize pretty fast that it's kind of the Holy grail of mechanical weed control, which is to say a lot of other steps have to be done right for the in-row stuff to work. Uh, obviously, the, the between-row, you need to do right and you need to set up the soil correctly. But then all sorts of steps before that, uh, we've found, and other people have told me, need to happen so that the in-row weeds can, can be pulled out without killing your crop. So let's
0: talk about some of those principles for weed control. I mean, when you talk about the things that need to be done to set yourself up to be able to do that effective in-row weed control, what are we talking about?
1: Well, the most important thing I, I would call the first prime imperative, and uh, and Michael Smith over at Crest, he, he's been real nice, and and we've talked a lot of these things over, and he's wanted to introduce me to this. It sounds really obvious, and I guess it is, but it's that in order to do any in-row weed control. Um, your crop needs to be bigger than your weed. And whether it's the roots of your crop, if you're using a tool that pulls, or whether it's the top of your crop, whether you're using a tool that heals. But that's the first prime imperative. These tools aren't magic. And and you need to set yourself up for success. And so the first thing is you need to have your crop bigger than your weed. And if that's the case, then you can go forward. But you got to do things to get to that step uh, first.
0: You know, I love that because it is... It's so basic, but I do feel like it, it kind of needs to be said. And, you know, part of that is comes from the fact that the vast majority of vegetable seeds are at least a little bit larger than the vast majority of weed seeds. So the day they right. come up, they're actually bigger than a weed seed that germinates on the same day.
1: Exactly. and And even when that's not the case, you know, for tiny turnips or what have you, there's there's a lot of things you can do to to move the scale in your favor. I guess I'll just introduce the concept by saying I find it really helpful to think about it as a as a pyramid or an iceberg, and the the inro weeding tools are the tip of the iceberg, and that's what people see are these nice mechanical tools on YouTube videos. Oh man, they're gonna they're gonna really change my life. Um, but there's a lot below the water. Going on at the base of that pyramid, at the base of that iceberg, that needs to happen to really set those tools up. Um, for example, I'd say at the base is plant health, which is soil health. Um, if you plant your vegetables in soil that is not conducive to them, there's plenty of other plants that are going to grow well in those soil, and they're called weeds. So the first thing is you need to have soil that that's going to allow your plants to jump up and really grow as fast as they possibly can, and that's really I think where where you start taking care of that first prime imperative where you get those plants uh, bigger than the weeds to start with, and I think the the second step is um the size of your weed seed bank, and for example, you can have in a square foot of soil uh ten thousand weeds, or you can have a hundred weeds um, based on how you've been managing your weed seed bank and let's say you have your your cultivator just tuned in fantastically and um and you're killing 90% of the weeds. Well, if you've got only 100 weeds in that square foot, there's only 10 left. You're killing it. But if you started with 10,000 weeds, and you only killed 90%, why, you've still got 1,000 weeds there. So reducing your weed seed bank is going to make a huge difference uh, in allowing these tools to succeed. And, and I've seen that here at the University Research Farm for various reasons. The field that we're on has a very low weed seed bank. And so I I can grow carrots without ever weeding them. And in fact, I actually have to plant weeds for us to do our research, which is to say that through all types of cultural practices that we could get into, um, you can really quickly over the course of just three or five years, you can drastically reduce the amount of weed seeds in your soil. And that sets you up for success in the future. Um, And after that, you know, before you even plant your vegetables, there's tillage. Um, when you do that, you want to think about what you're hoping to achieve. For example, um, the previous fall, let's say you're tilling in the spring, the previous fall, did you do a bad job on weed control? Did a bunch of lambs quarters go to seed? Well, if you know that you have a whole bunch of weed seeds on the surface, maybe you want to moldboard plow and bury them quite deeply so that they're not going to be a problem that next year, especially if you're doing um, a crop that's not very competitive, such as onions. On the other hand, if you're planting something like potatoes or corn, maybe you want to just lightly till to leave those seeds on the surface because you know that your crop will be able to compete with them and you can work them out of the soil. Um, I'd say after that, you know, you're going to be preparing your seed bed, uh, whether you need a really fine seed bed for carrots or beets or something much, you know, rougher for those other crops we're talking about. And even that starts to set you up for your mechanical weed control later on. Um, one thing that we found here, you know, I told you that we wanted to start using these in tools in reduced tillage systems. And we found out that with too much residue in the soil or with a very uneven bed, um, we couldn't get the kind of precision that we needed. And so even when you're preparing your seed bed, you know, after I rototill, now um, I, I drag a lawn roller over it just to make sure that everything is compressed that when the cedar comes through, the seed press wheels won't make little valleys, uh, you know, so the whole bed's even, and, and so that there's not um, waves left by, by um, the rototiller or s estine cultivator or whatever I'm doing for my seed bed. So uh, what we've been figuring out is that, uh, you know, just like building a house, detail matters at all the steps. And e- even if, if you're careless in a single step, that might be okay. But over the course of a few steps, things really add up. And by the time you get, you know, to that final cultivation, uh, it can really hinder you. And, and then you start thinking about planting, you know, another step up. Well, what's your spacing going to be? Are you leaving enough space in between plants so that they can be healthy and thrive and compete with weeds? And also, are you leaving enough space between plants and on the shoulders of your bed so that there is earth there that you can move up and down? If you space things too tightly, some tools won't fit. And even if they do fit, there won't be enough uh, earth for them to say hill or to pull away,
0: and so there. And so there, what you're saying is like if maybe I've got a a bed top that's 40 inches that I don't want to have my two outside rows end up being spaced at like 36 inches because especially if I've got a bed, I'm just not going to be able to to move any soil from the outside edges of the bed into that row or to be able to to adequately control those weeds.
1: Exactly, and. Of course, it gets tempting to fit as many plants as you can. But as you've said before, you know, the more rows you try and fit in, the more you're opening yourself up to diseases. And like you just said, you know, you really need that space there to be able to move soil around. And something might look right on paper, but when you've driven over a bed a few times with a tractor, you know, you're a few inches off here, a few inches off there, you really want to leave yourself enough space to to play around with.
0: I know that some of the biggest weed disasters that I observed when I was when I was out uh, consulting on farms was was farms that were doing raised beds and didn't adequately control the weeds on the shoulders of the beds. I think for precisely what you're talking about there, there's that that couple of inches of variability. And it, it requires just that much more precision and and a little bit of a little bit of a fudge factor on the edge of those beds, between the edge of the bed and the outside rows, so that you can both knock some of those, that soil off as you're killing the weeds, but then also have enough that if you need to move some soil into the row to bury the weeds, that you've got the room to do that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really a good point is the fudge factor. I mean, these tools can be incredibly precise and at the same time, you know, it rains and you miss a cultivation, you want there to be enough soil there that you can just really aggressively hill.
0: So in this you described it as a pyramid or, an, or, a, or a weed control iceberg. Um, you, we've got kind of everything that we do before we plant. What can we do at planting to set ourselves up for success with weed control?
1: Speaking to the principle of, of kind of doing everything right and, and not letting the mistakes pile up, one thing I noticed in Europe and Holland and Switzerland is they had a real focus on growing all their crops evenly. Uh, So, for example, they wanted to be able to harvest everything at once, right? That's a lot easier than coming through and harvesting some heads today and some heads next week. And to that end, when they planted, they wanted to make sure, one, that um, all the seeds were at an equal depth. You know, if some are deeper, they're going to take longer to come up. And of course, if they're shallower, vice versa. And so that just goes back to having a nice flat bed top. And similarly, um, you want to be set up right away to irrigate. Um, if you're not set up to irrigate and you wait a few days, well, the moist spots of the field are going to come up sooner. The dry spots won't. And then even when you're irrigating, you want to do your best to do that in a very even fashion. And these are things that I kind of thought I knew, but when I saw them in practice over there, it really impressed upon me the lengths that you can go to, to grow your crop very evenly. And in that way, you can treat it the same when it comes time to those uh, weeding machines.
0: Right. Yeah, because you certainly don't want to adjust your cultivators at one end of the bed for inch tall weeds and then have half inch tall weeds or two inch tall weeds at the other end of the bed.
1: You got it. And and you're going to have enough cultivator adjustment to do. So you definitely want to cut down on that.
0: And I think that's where making those investments in seeding tools can really make a difference. You know, making sure that you've got a, a seeder that's working the way that you expect it to work. And I would imagine, too, even just thinking about the having a good control of the depth of the seeds, not just being consistent, but, you know, there's, you know, small seeds don't want to be placed deep in the soil. And if you plant something too deeply, then you're going to be waiting for it to come up. And that's an opportunity for those weeds to germinate ahead of your crop.
1: Yeah. And that's another example where, where things can add up. You know, if you didn't do a great job on your primary tillage, if you didn't do a great job on your seed bed prep, and all of a sudden you have a cloddy soil and you're trying to put turnip seeds in, uh, that's going to be a pain. Another thing I wanted to add about planting that that I think is a a pretty important uh, principle for mechanical cultivation is you want to plant as many rows at one time that you want to cultivate at one time, which is to say, you know, there's a lot of people um, with just one cedar, you know, and those dang cedars are pretty dang expensive and the planted juniors can be too and so you just plant one row at a time and kind of mark the bed and and do your best and if you do a great job you know say you have some some marking tool right off the back of your tiller um you know it can work but for for the best work of those mechanical tools you want the spacing to be perfect perfect and the best way to do that is to seed them all at once you know so you know that on the toolbar everything is clamped tight and you know the exact spacing uh, so you know exactly where the plants are going to come up.
0: I actually do think, you know, construction is a really good metaphor for, for what we're talking about, because, you know, I know that, that it's it's one thing if at the last step you have something that's a little bit out of square. But, you know, when you're pouring that foundation, right, or when you're when you're laying out the posts for your high tunnel, that first step of making sure that the corners of the building are perfectly square if you get that right, everything else is easier. Everything else falls into place. But, but otherwise, you end up with these kind of these compounding errors. and And like you say, with setting up these doing the row spacing, you know the the if' you're, if you're seating by hand, you're just you're setting yourself up for what I think of as what I call these compounding errors. So you' are you know, maybe you're a half inch off on one row and a half inch off on another row. Well, that means you've actually got a full inch now. Of s- between two of your rows that that's unaccounted for in how you go about setting up your mechanical cultivation.
1: Absolutely. And, and I don't want people to think that this is out of their reach or, Oh, I have to buy a $1,200, you know, three row setup. You, you don't have to, you know, uh, I think Elliot Coleman in his books talks about bolting three earthway cedars together. You know, it's really as simple as that. These, these principles and these steps can be carried out at any scale.
0: I'm pretty proud of my ability to be appropriately anal Um, although sometimes it's actually a a little bit of a hindrance in my life, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm good at being really precise. And I do remember back when we were seeding things by hand, you know, what was actually the most important for us is to follow the, the marks that we had made in the soil. You know, even if the marks curved, don't straighten out the row. You know, don't try to correct for it. Just if you're going to mark the rows and then seed them, you have to be really precise about following the marks that you made instead of trying to cut corners or trying to straighten things out as you go.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So getting that seeding done and and doing it with a lot of precision being really important.
1: A- absolutely. It's paramount. Otherwise, if you don't do that, that's fine, but just expect to cultivate one row at a time.
0: Right. And actually, you know, th- this is something that Barb and Dave Ter- Perkins talked about on, on, on their episode just a couple episodes back, and that I remember from working with Richard DeWild at Harmony Valley Farm. You know, these are people that started off with even tractor-mounted transplanters or seeders that would, would do one row at a time, and then yeah. would just cultivate one row at a time. It took them a little bit longer, but it was still faster than the alternative.
1: That's a good point, and and I remember this, you know, fr- from when I was pushing a wheel hoe. Is j- just the tiniest improvement can make a huge difference. I mean, just a pair of sweeps on a tractor, one row of sweeps. I mean, heck, that's that saves you how much time of pushing a wheel hoe. And so, if you need to do that one row at a time, you know, great, do it and and start there. And then, as you can build up doing several rows, you know, it's going to save you even more time.
0: Well, and if we look back at kind of the foundations of mechanical cultivation, you know, some of the first tractors out there for cultivating were really designed as one row cultivators. You know, the super A's were offset. You know, you, if you're trying to cultivate two rows at a time on a super A or any other offset tractor, there's, there's at least one row that you can't see. Um, you know, you're only looking at the one that's on the right hand side of the tractor because the tractor body's offset to the left. And That's not what they were designed for. They were really designed for doing that one row down the middle. And of course, anything that we would, would apply to seeding is really the process of getting plants in the ground, whether you're putting, uh, whether you're putting garlic cloves in the ground or seed potatoes or seeds or transplants or whatever, the more precision that you can do that with and, and being up this idea that we want to, seed as many rows at a time as we plan to cultivate at a time, that's going to be better, right?
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, a lot of people with water wheel transplanters, which are great, you know, that punch a hole in the ground. Everyone needs to be on the same page. If your crew doesn't know the process coming down the line and they think the job is just popping plants in the hole, uh, you, you might get a wavy line of lettuce transplants. Everyone needs to know that uh, the plants need to be set in as straight a fashion as possible. And, uh, and it really pays off.
0: It was actually something when we moved away from a water wheel on my farm that I was became thrilled with. I was like, all of a sudden, all of the plants were in a straight line and I could cultivate a much narrower band when I was doing that between row cultivation on my tractor. Yeah. So, okay, so now I've got the seeds in the ground or I've done my transplants, everything's perfectly aligned with the way that I'm gonna to wanna to get the cultivating job done, the weed killing job done. What's next?
1: So, next is what people call blind cultivation um, tools like a tine weeder, a flame weeder, a rotary hoe. And these are tools that we can use before the plants are even out of the ground. And the goal here is to promote and maintain that prime imperative, that size difference between the plants and the weeds. Um, for us here at the university, we're, we're doing a lot of work on carrots. Um, that's kind of the most notoriously hardest uh, plant to grow with weeds, and so that's what we wanted to test these tools on. And so flame weeding to us uh, is crucial, and and the payoff is obvious. Um, for other crops, uh, people use tine weeders or rotary hose, but the principle is is the same. And that's that the crop has not yet come up or it's very small. Um, and so we want to just disturb that top layer of soil where any weeds may have started germinating. And to that point, that's something where when you're planting, you want to think about your depth that you're planting to. If you know that you're going to use a rotary hoe, or if you know that on your soil, the tine weeder only works well when you can sink those tines in an inch, you're going to want to keep that in mind in deciding on your planting depth.
0: Right. So do you have I mean is is that something where you might even change the planting depth even for doing something like flame weeding?
1: Yeah, we we think about that. Right now the timing's good. We we put our carrots uh 3 eighths of an inch deep and we plan on flame weeding 6 to 7 days later. Now throughout this you you can kind of play the odds. So let's say you really want to push it. I know uh Nash Uh, Huber, I think Nash's organic farm out in Washington state, he grows a lot of carrots. And one trick he does is he overseeds his carrots by five or 10%. And the reason is that he pushes off flaming till the last possible moment until about 5% of the carrots are up. And so when he flames, he'll kill some, but he's also assured of killing as many weeds uh, as he can. You know, whereas of course, if he flamed earlier, some of those weeds might still emerge after he flamed.
0: So I just want to make sure I mean we before we get too far into this this um this blind weed control that we talk about how does this principle of pre-emergent flame weeding actually work what are the what are the dynamics that are at play with this
1: Well with a lot of crops direct seeded crops you know like carrots and beets they're going to take a while to come up and with something like corn or beans, they pop up and you can see right away where the rows are. And pretty soon they're big enough that you can run tools through them uh, without pulling them out or burying them. But for a lot of our other crops, they're going to stay in the ground for a long time. And if you were to wait a week or two or more uh, w- without controlling weeds, you're going to have weeds start to germinate. And more than that, they're going to really um, get settled there in the soil. They're going to put down that taproot and they're going to start getting bigger than your crop. And what flame weeding allows you to do is burn the soil, and you don't even need to go across the entire bed. You can just have a burner right where your rows are. And you burn that soil while your crop has not yet emerged, but while a lot of your weeds are emerging. And that's the sort of beauty, magic, and terror of it, is you need to hit that point where your crop is really close to coming up, but not up, but a lot of your weeds are up. And that's why some people will will overseed if they know they're going to flame. They'll add five ten percent uh, so that they can wait till just the first few carrots are up, flame, and maybe kill five percent of them. But then they know that the next day the main crop uh, is all going to come up, and they'll have killed as many weeds as they could have.
0: For us, the way that we managed that at Rock Spring Farm was we used pelletized carrot seeds, and radishes were almost exactly the same, si- radish seeds were almost exactly the same size as a pelletized carrot. And so we could put them both through the same seeder. And then the, when those radishes came up, we knew that's when it was time to start watching for those carrots. And I'd actually go out and dig around with my knife and find the carrots and watch for them and, and observe actually how the seeds were germinating rather than overseeding. That was, that was my preferred method. Um, I know other people that would actually put a pane of glass out on top of one row of carrots, you know, so you've got a pane of glass over maybe a foot or two of row and the day that the carrots came up in the pane of glass, because it was, it was hotter and moister under there, then you could would start looking and paying attention to where was everything else in that planting. And that would be your guide for when to get in and do that flame weeding.
1: That, and, and those are great ways And I think some people get intimidated, you know, they know there's going to be a million things going on in June. And are you going to remember to look at the carrots? I think what seems helpful that that I've heard of other people doing um, is just picking a day. You know, a lot of people use six days for carrots and it might not be the very best day, but um, it's something you can put on the calendar after planting and, and you kind of know that it's going to be good enough
0: that I like that and, and you know again for me what I did is I put in a calendar reminder the day that I seeded the carrots so that I was being prompted on a daily basis to get out and start observing starting on day 6 right so flame weeding is one way of doing what we call this blind cultivation and when we say blind cultivation it's really that we're we're not paying any attention to to the plants to the to the crop we're just we're just killing weeds and we're not necessarily trying to steer or anything like that. What are some other ways of doing blind cultivation and, and where are those appropriate to use?
1: The two other tools that come to mind are a flex tine weeder. If people are familiar with those, those are um, kind of just wires of spring steel that set uh, vertically in the soil. And as you pull them through, they vibrate. Uh, they describe a small circle in the soil and they'll, and they'll um, uproot uh, small plants. And so that's that's popular mostly with crops that are a little um, a little more established, or I should say that's popular, but more so with crops that can be planted deeper. Um, it's very hard to set a tine weeder to work just the half inch surface of soil. So something like beans, corn, potatoes that you can plant deeper, and then you can work the top inch, inch and a half with the tines. I've had more success with that when I try and. You know, work just the very surface that I, that you would need to with something like carrots or beets. I'm not able to to get it to bite as much.
0: We use that tool a lot on on transplanted crops. So you put in your brassicas or your lettuces. You wait a week, let those get established in the soil, and then come through with that tine weeder. And as it's inscribing those little circles, if you've got tiny little weeds in there, they get knocked out. They get uprooted, and then their their little baby roots are exposed to the sun and it doesn't take long for them to die.
1: Did did you have good success with the tine weeder? I've got to say, I've spent a few days in the field just kind of playing with with settings and and really trying to see what works. And, you know, maybe it's our model or maybe it's our soil, but I've just, I've never been as happy with it as some other tools.
0: You know, I was pretty happy with it. I mean, it's, what I liked about it was, well, you take this idea that you talked about of, of the weed seed bank, right? If I can do a 90% reduction each time I go through the field, pretty soon I don't have any weeds left, you know, yeah. so going through with that tine weeder, I certainly didn't expect to get 100% weed kill. Um, and I always knew that I was going to pull out a couple of broccoli plants too, but it was something that I could set up behind my tractor and I could do the work really fast and get a lot of weeds killed in, in fairly short order. And it was also yeah. something that I found I could delegate pretty easily to somebody who maybe I wouldn't want them on the cultivating tractor, but it was something that I could put them on so they're just operating the three-point, doing the blind cultivation, a little less skill involved, a little less precision being involved in that. And for me, the other thing that we found was doing it on the right soils, our heavier clay soils, if we didn't have a good seed bed at all. Um, it it didn't work as well, but when we had a nice friable seed bed and something that hadn't gotten crusted over, it was really a great tool for us.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a reason that farmers love to have tools sitting in their fence rows. Is uh, and I, I often get made fun of for wanting to have too many cultivation tools, but uh, like you just said, the, the tine weeder might be a great tool, but once your soil crusts over all of a sudden you need something else. You know, and again, when your soil's too wet, all of a sudden you want something else.
0: I, I agree. I mean, that is having those tools available to you and the right tool at the right time and the right conditions. And I think especially if you're operating a farm that has soil on the ridge as well as fields down in the valley, um, you know, if you're dealing with soils that crust when it's rainy or, or soils that maybe you've got soils that if you till them just a little bit too wet, behave very, very differently than if you tell them a little too dry, uh, you know, having a lot of different tools that you can rely on is really important. So what about the rotary hoe? That always felt to me like something that my corn and bean farming neighbors used, but I don't actually have any experience using that on my farm. Is that something that you see very many vegetable growers using the rotary hoe?
1: No, not very many. Um, Kilmore Company is is just coming out uh, with some rotary hoe units that I think are going to be a little more adaptable. Um, smaller units, you know, instead of a big, say, eight-foot gang of them. But you're right in that it's mostly corn and beans people using them, and I believe the reason is is that it's more aggressive. So you need uh, either a plant that's better anchored or a seed that's planted deeper so you can work the soil to a greater depth above it.
0: In my neck of the woods, in the in the Drifos region my neighbors mostly used it for beans when they had crusting in the soil, then that was the tool that they would use to go out and kind of break up that crust and, and allow those beans to emerge through it. And so again, that, that blind cultivation being something that is, is suitable for some crops, not suitable for others. So, so what's next as we're kind of working our way up this cultivation pyramid or this cultivation iceberg?
1: Sure. Uh, well, so now, now our plants are up they're up enough where we can we can physically see them and more than just walking by and, and thinking about how nice they look, they're big enough that we can see them from the seat of a tractor when we're moving, you know, two, three, five miles an hour. Um and so next comes our, our between row weeding. And as far as I know and for most of the crops that I'm familiar with, you can't do in-row weeding uh as soon as the crops emerge. You need to you need to wait um until they're better rooted or taller so that they can withstand that. Um and so, so, then comes your between row weeding and here 's where I would bring up the the third prime imperative of mechanical weed control, and that is the knowledge that ninety percent of your weed seeds germinate in the top inch and a half of your soil and on the face of it, it might just seem like you know another academic fact, but I believe that it 's very important, and what that says to me is that um If I do not disturb the soil deeper than one and a half inches, most of the weed seeds will have germinated and I can kill them. But if I start disturbing the soil below that inch and a half, now I'm bringing up new weed seeds. And so I like to keep that in mind when I'm thinking about tools for between row weed control, because whatever I use, I want them to work shallowly, just an inch and a half. And if I can continually just work that top layer, I'll exhaust that layer of weed seeds uh, without working deeper and bringing up more weed seeds. And of course, there's other benefits to that, um, like not going too deep and pruning your root. So I think that third prime imperative to me describes the kind of tools that I want to use in between row weed control. And so when a lot of people go to auctions or pull things out of the fence rows from 50 years ago, you see those big sweeps, right? They've got a real steep angle on them and they're really meant for digging. And if you're looking on Craigslist or an auction listing, they're going to call those things cultivators. And sure, they they might be a cultivator for corn and beans 50 years ago, but but that's really not what you want to be using now, at least on your tender vegetable crops, and at least when we had better tools available to us.
0: So what do I want to be using for my between row weed control?
1: Well, I would suggest a few things. Um... I don't want to put down sweeps. Sweeps are fantastic. Um, But one thing that we saw a lot of in Europe were were sweeps with a very shallow angle to the ground. And so think of instead of a a shovel moving through the soil, it's more like a knife. It's very flat to the ground. What those shallow sweeps allow you to do is move much less soil. And of course, they come in many different sizes. Um, You can get the traditional V, uh, V sweep. And you can also get um, L blades, or what people call beat knives. And those are handy because you can have the vertical side of that knife um, right next to the plant when it's small. And later, when it canopies out, you can switch those around so that the long end is reaching underneath the foliage.
0: And those L blades, I mean, I almost think of it as it's kind of like having half of a stirrup hole blade, right? You've got the vertical part that that is running next to the plant. And then you've got, a, you've got the sweep that kind of moves out from there. That's horizontally slicing through the soil.
1: That's a really good way to put it. And I think also similarly with wheel hole blades, they can sometimes be ineffective when the soil is very moist. I know our clay soil in Wisconsin, I could go through it with a stirrup hole when it was wet enough, and it sure seemed like that ribbon of soil would just drop right back down, and the weeds would root right back in.
0: I think that comes to the whole timing issue, right? What you're talking about that's not gonna happen with a weed that's a half inch tall. that's gonna happen with a three inch tall weed is gonna is gonna have enough reserves and energy to be able to put out more roots once you slice most of it off.
1: That's right, I think another another factor that can help there. Is, is the number of sweeps that you're using. So, for example, let's say that you're on 15-inch rows, and so your sweeps are, say, uh, 12 inches wide. Well, you could run one 12-inch sweep, or you could run three 6-inch sweeps that were offset, um, you know, one in the front, in the middle, and two on either side, kind of like uh, making the shape of an arrowhead. And that's something that's going to allow you to move a lot more soil. Now, you're not going to be moving a greater depth of soil, remembering our prime imperative about only an inch and a half deep. But the soil that you do move in that top inch and a half, you can really tumble around. And so any weeds that are in there, instead of just getting lifted up once and dropped, uh, there's a much better chance that, um, that the soil will get knocked off of them, et cetera. And, and that's what we see in a lot of the commercial cultivator setups is you don't just see one sweep. Uh, one large sweep between row, you see several smaller sweeps between row that can really get that soil boiling.
0: Right. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that vision. The, I like that image of the soil boiling and kind of those weeds really getting tumbled and turned around so that you're not just lifting it up and dropping it back into place. Well, and I actually think, I mean, so we're, we talked a little bit about wheel hose here and a lot of, you know, a lot of the people that listen to the show, that's what they're using for weed control. I mean, if you're operating on a small scale, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't have a cultivating tractor or anything fancy. Would this be an appropriate time to talk about tool carriers?
1: Sure. Sure. I, I always love talking about tool carriers, Chris.
0: And again, when I say tool carriers, this is that, I mean, the wheel hoe, right? That's a That's a tool carrier. You got the wheel, you got a thing that you can mount it to, and you've got some handles. So then but then that's what's gonna carry that U shaped blade or the stirrup blade or whatever other tools you're gonna use as a so it's carrying that tool. It's a tool carrier. Same thing with an Alice Chalmers G or a uh an international one forty or or my favorite tool carrier of all was my my Kubota L two hundred forty five H. I loved that tractor. Uh okay. You know. So so talk to me about talk to me about tool carriers.
1: Okay. Um I would say, uh, number one that, that goes across tractors and wheel hose is you want to suspend your tool between two sets of wheels. And of course, in the tractors, I don't really need to mention that most things are belly mounted. And the reason is, is that it makes steering much easier. And well, you want to do the same thing for a wheel hole. And, and that solution to that is a wheel hole with four wheels, not, not one or two. Um, when you have one or two wheels, you are holding the handles, and the height that you hold the handles at um, sets the depth of the tool. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean if you because the the tools the carrier part of that is on the back of that front wheel, and so if it's you know depending on how you're carrying those handles, that's going to determine the its relation the relationship of the cultivating tool to the soil.
1: Exactly, it, and. So it's very hard to get um, precise depth in that way because when you take a deep breath and stand up taller or you get tired and you go lower, you're always bouncing up and down. And to me, the idea of a four-wheel wheel wheel hose seems insane until I saw one. And then it made perfect sense. And there's a man out of New Zealand, Charles Murfield, and he designs a four-wheeled wheel hose. And imagine an Alice G, you know, with the two wheels in the front, two wheels in the back. The tool suspended uh, underneath the belly and just shrink that down, you know, factor of 10 and imagine a little rectangular frame with two wheels in the front and two in the back. And all of a sudden, instead of you needing to push it forward and maintain the angle of the tool to the ground, now with the four wheels, all you do is push. And just like someone with their fancy tractor or their fancy cultivator, where you can really tune in the depth that your tools are running all of a sudden you can do the exact same thing uh, on your wheel hole.
0: Have you actually used one of those, or is it just something that you've seen?
1: I've just seen. Uh, Charles uh, has, uh, has plans for these, and so I've talked to him about the pictures and how to build them and what kind of materials. So I haven't used one, but uh, if anyone wants to construct them, they should get a hold of me or Charles, and we'll, we'll set you up.
0: What's next after the wheel hoe? What's kind of my next step up in terms of tool carriers?
1: The really exciting next step up that's just starting to get uh, recognized is um, walk behind tractors, two wheel tractors. And I just think that's so exciting because um, it's too easy to think, well, I have a wheel hole, but I'm not going to be able to spend $4,000 on a G and I'm not farming the 10 acres that that a G could do. And and so I'm stuck here at the wheel hole. And I think the two wheel tractor um, is just a very exciting intermediate scale. that that people can can run cultivators at, and almost any tool that you can run on a tractor, or I should say on a wheel hoe, you can run on a walk behind tractor, and someone probably already is.
0: And so that walk behind tractor, though, that's a two wheeled implement. How is that different than a wheel hoe in terms of supporting the rear end of the of the implement?
1: Really good question, Chris. What you'll notice on those two wheel tractors for the cultivation setups. Um, is that they have uh, a toolbar right behind the the hitch of the two-wheel tractor. And extending a few feet back on either side from that toolbar are gauge wheels. And the gauge wheels uh, sit in the ground. Oftentimes, they're a wavy coulter like you'd see on a a plow, um, or they could be wheels. And the whole point there is that they act as a rudder. They lock the back end of the tractor into the ground, and they also... Um, provide that depth control. So all of a sudden, instead of the two-wheel tractor acting like a wheel hole where you're holding the handles, you know, up or down and and the tools going up or down, all of a sudden you've got those gauge wheels set in the ground. And all you're doing is holding the handles and steering. The front wheels are pulling it forward. And again, the tool is suspended in between two sets of wheels and that allows for a lot more precision. So these
0: 2 wheeled cultivating tractors... Tell me more about these. Is this something that I can just go online and order?
1: Well, you can't order them new, Chris. Hopefully soon um, enough people will be clamoring for them that that someone will get into it. Um, But mostly people find them on Craigslist, on auctions. These are tools that are 50, 80 years old. And I talked to Jeff Lauber out in uh, Iowa, who's been collecting these things for years. And he told me a little bit about the history, which was before the Alice G came along in the late 40s, um, these tractors, these two-wheel tractors, were what a lot of vegetable growers were using, and you could get them in, in, you know, 10 horsepower models that could pull a plow. And people were growing, you know, whole truck farms were just using two-wheel tractors, um, but they're not being made anymore. And so a lot of people, you know, find one on Craigslist, and the engine is you know, 50 years old, and so they get a new Honda engine for it, and the bearings run out, and then you have to worry about finding bearings. Um, so they're definitely around, but uh, but you do have to put a little time in often to, to get them working for you.
0: Why not just hook something up to the back of the BCS or the Grillo that I might already own?
1: You can do that, and and I've got a friend, Paul Huber in Wisconsin, who who's doing that right now, um, and he can tell you how that's working out for him. And in a sense, that sounds great because you've already got the tractor, you're already using it for uh, roto tilling, et cetera. The only thing is, um, the BCS and God bless them, they're just not made for cultivating, and the clearance is very low. So sure, maybe you could, um, maybe you could run through, you know, your carrots or beets when they've just emerged. Um, but these older walk behind tractors, um, you know, have uh, eight inches of clearance. Uh, you know, that you can run over, say, a 10, 12-inch plant that bends underneath it. So they're just a lot more conducive. It
0: really is that they're designed to do that job rather than being designed as a tillage tool and a mowing
1: tool. Yeah.
0: So if I feel like now, you know, I've I've done what I can do, I've exhausted or my my scale isn't right for this two-wheeled Planet Junior or or other antique cultivating tractor, this other antique two-wheeled cultivating tractor, That I maybe put a new engine on, but now it's time for me to make that that next step as I'm scaling up my farm, or if I've already got a larger farm. What am I looking at now as as we start to look at a G or a or a 140 or a Super A? What do I want to consider when I'm getting into these four wheeled, mounted, you know, belly mounted cultivating tractors?
1: So there's a heck of a lot of options out there, and I've had a lot of fun talking to farmers and salesmen and haunting the internet, just trying to get a handle on this. And uh, it seems like a few things you want to identify before you're jumping in is, one, of course, how much money do you want to spend on this? Two, how long do you think you're going to have it for? You know, do you imagine yourself growing in scale even more so in a year or three? Or or do you think you're going to use this tractor for some time? And also, how much do you like working on machines? And, and those are going to give you an idea of whether you want to get, you know, a sixty-year-old Alice Chalmers G, which can be a fantastic tractor, but also uh, notoriously finicky, or do you want to try and pay more money for something newer, say one of the um, cultivating tractors that they made in the eighties, mostly for tobacco? You know, uh,
0: thinking like a Kubota or a, or a it's a it's a, a Kubota two forty five or or the uh, or the L two forty five. And then there's the, there was a, a Case IH model that was similar to that.
1: Yeah, that's, I think, 265. And then you had the John Deere 900 high crop.
0: So, I mean, leaving aside the issue of whether I'm a good mechanic or a bad mechanic or, or whether the engine's reliable or not on that particular model, of tractor, what would I want to look at when I'm looking into a cultivating tractor? What are the important things to consider there? Because there's a lot of different models and there's a lot of different ways you could go with
1: that yeah I guess the big question is is what do you want to do with it? So, if you want to do between row weed control on something like corn and beans, you don't need to be able to go that slow. I know that's something people complain about with the super c is that it can't go very slow. uh Another consideration that's probably more important is how much space is there under the belly um, A lot of these tractors were built to have. Uh, just single sweeps underneath there. And now people are learning about these tools coming in from Europe uh, that require more space. And if you have a tractor that doesn't give you that much space, you're not going to be able to use those tools, or you're really going to feel like you're packing them in there.
0: Right. And and then I know, I remember uh, the first G that I used on my farm, we had a bat set of basket weeders underneath it, and there there actually wasn't enough clearance front to back to be able to lift those basket weeders up without running into the bottom of the, of the G, you know, there wasn't enough, there just wasn't enough overhead clearance and that became a real problem for us.
1: You got it. And, and, and there's a lot of neat pictures on the internet of people who have chopped up their G's or other tractors to make more space. And that's something when you look at the European tool carriers, you just kind of hit your forehead and say, duh, why didn't we do that? They have, These tall, soaring steel beams, you know, five feet above the ground, six feet long, that just give you as much space as you'd want uh, for tools.
0: All right. So I think we're going to take a break here and get a word from a couple of sponsors. And then we'll be right back with Sam Hitchcock-Tilton talking about weed control. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend utterly on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. It's got to produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, and that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost Company can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. Consistency and quality, two things we could all use a lot more of. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer, and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools that you need to get jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. All right, and we're back with Sam Hitchcock-Tilton talking about weed control on the vegetable farm. So, Sam, I'd, I kind of want to dive in now and talk about the the actual tools, the things that we're going to use to kill the weeds. You know, we've talked a lot about kind of the principles and, and sort of setting up to get ready to kill weeds and how important that is and how that forms the base of this iceberg or this pyramid for, for weed control. But let's talk about some
1: tools. I'd like to illustrate that with a joke if I could. Uh, A guy walks into the doctor's office and he's got a carrot sticking in one ear. He's got an ear of sweet corn sticking in the other ear. And he's got a whole piece of celery sticking in his nose. He says, doc, you've got to help me. And the doctor says, well, this is obvious. You're not eating properly. (laughs) And similarly, uh, we might have that finger weeder, but we don't want to stick it in our nose. We have to mount it correctly. If you just mount a finger weeder directly to a toolbar, you know, you might complain, hey, this isn't working the way I thought it was, um, but we really need to give the tools the flexibility that they need to move the soil appropriately.
0: Sam, this was actually, for me, a prime source of frustration on the farm is, you know, we, we'd we buy a cultivating tractor, but then figuring out how to get the tools connected to the tractor just made me want to go beat my head against the wall. Yeah. So. What are we looking for with this?
1: Kind of the first step and the easiest thing to do that is the least desirable thing to do is to, to get some sort of clamp and just bolt that thing right to the, right to the cultivator frame. And that's how a lot of these cultivators, you know, again, you get them at an auction, 50, 60-year-old corn cultivators. Uh, they're just bolted right to the frame. And that gives you zero flexibility as your terrain changes Or as the soil type changes, and you really want to let that tool move with the ground, move with the soil conditions. And so, let me describe the sort of spectrum of linkages that that can be more and more successful. The first thing is bolting right to the frame. The second thing is um, tools that are connected with the sort of S tines, and that S tine allows the tool to move. If it hits a rock, it can bend around it. What people also see are parallel linkages, and those are just fantastic. Each parallel linkage has a wheel that follows the ground. And so with that wheel, you can very precisely set the depth of your tool, and as the wheel hits a rock or goes over a hump of soil, the tool is going to do the same thing. And so you can maintain that inch-and-a-half depth. And a lot of parallel linkages, if they're well-made, they'll have a spring on them where you can adjust the down pressure. So let's say your soil is hard and crusted and you want your tool pressing into the soil with more force. You can adjust that spring. Likewise, if your soil is more sandy uh, and you don't want to move as much soil, you can adjust that spring to have less down pressure. And that's a similar um, principle that these floating arms work with. If if people have seen pictures of these um, steerable toolbars that are mounted in the back of a tractor. Many of them have the finger weeder's or other in-row elements mounted on floating arms, and and those also have um, springs on them so you can adjust the down pressure with which the tool will engage the ground.
0: And again, this is going to allow for any variation that you may have, say in your bed, if your bed formation wasn't exactly perfect, and it makes sure that you're always cultivating an inch deep instead of sometimes cultivating an inch deep and sometimes being at two inches and sometimes being out of the ground.
1: Exactly. We're talking about precision and we're talking about the steps all adding up. And this is just another uh, piece of the puzzle here that that gives us the precision that we're aiming for.
0: Are parallel linkages something I can just go out and buy now?
1: Not that I know of. Um, what I'm always looking for is corn cultivators from the 60s or 70s. You know, once we started up with Roundup Ready corn, the people stopped cultivating. Um, so if you can find an old row crop cultivator, um, you know, say a six, eight row cultivator, you can take that apart. And there's so many parts there that you can really do what you want. The only thing is for our purposes with vegetables, those parallel linkages can be pretty big and heavy, especially if we're using narrower spacing. Some companies are importing these now from Europe. Uh, I believe Sutton Ag in California is bringing in the Steckity brand, um, Uh, Michael Smith is importing the Crest brand. And so there are available European models for these smaller, more vegetable-focused parallel linkages. So once I've got,
0: if it's appropriate for the tool that I'm using, you know, hopefully a parallel linkage or or another way to connect this thing to the toolbar, let's talk about the the tool options for doing the, the actual weed control. Let's get down to killing some weeds here.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Um, Well, we talked about the sweeps or the beat knives, and those are great for kind of rough between row weeding. um, But every half inch, quarter inch that you can shrink that in row space drastically reduces any time needed for hand weeding. So you want tools that can get as close to the row as possible. The classic example of that is a budding basket weeder invented here in Michigan. It's a fantastic tool. The only thing about it I'll say is that the baskets um, can spill soil into the row, and so I find the closest that I can get with that tool is about a three-inch wide uncultivated uh, band. And again, it's a great tool, and especially for keeping good till in between the rows. I think something that can get even closer to the row is what are called cutaway discs. And so just imagine, um, you know, your normal large healing disc for throwing soil in. These cutaway discs are generally a lot smaller, maybe the size of your hand. And Alloway used to make them uh, for sugar beets, and Cress imports a model now. The way these cutaway discs work uh, is kind of just the opposite of a hilling disc. So, if you take your hand and you imagine it's a hilling disc and you're moving it forward uh, through the soil, the heel of your hand would be pointing in and your fingers would be pointing outward, and that's going to move soil in. Well, these cutaway discs are just the opposite. So, the front of the disc, like your fingers, is now pointed into the row. And the heel of your hand is pointed away. So as it moves forward, you're cutting soil away from the row. And I've found that you can set these very close um, down to about an inch and a half uncultivated band. And the thing I like about them is because they're a solid disc, unlike the baskets of the budding, um, there's no soil that will spill into the crop row. So even when your carrots don't even have their first true leaf, um, the cutaway disc acts as their own shield, keeping dirt out of the row. Um, other popular tools would be the spider weeders from Buzzerides. All these are options just to get as close to the row as we can.
0: yeah, those cutaway discs are a really fantastic, really fantastic tool for you know and because essentially any tool that you're using to slice horizontally through the soil is going to result in some side to side movement of soil and those those cutaway discs actually make i mean not, they they not only can protect those plants serving as kind of a rolling shield for the plants, but they can also actually create a little furrow that then that soil that's moving from side to side is able to fall back into.
1: You got it. And what I've seen when I use those cutaway discs perfectly is there's that narrow uncultivated band. But other than that, there's no difference in the soil surface because the soil on the side just falls right back into that little furrow.
0: And I think this also plays into what we were talking about earlier of setting things up for future success. I mean, if you, if you end up, you know, obviously, if you hill your carrots, your day-old carrots, um, they're going to die. But if you end up leaving a big mound of soil next to your day-old carrots on either side of them, you're going to be really restricted in your ability to come back in and cultivate again because until the carrots get big enough to handle the soil that was left, you're kind of stuck.
1: That's a really good point. You always got to think about the next step, and you've got to think about soil movement and the soil surface. And in terms of the next step, something like those cutaway discs leave you with a really nice little uh, mesa, for lack of a better term, which is to say, you've got the top of your uncultivated band. Let's hope it's about two inches wide, and then you've got a depth downward that those discs cut at. Let's say that's about a half a half inch on either side. And so you've got um, the disturbed soil, you know, where your between-row sweeps went. And then you've got that uh, half inch up, two inches across, and a half inch down that hasn't been touched. And that, if it dries out to the right moisture level, or if it's wet, you can really manipulate that when you start using your in-row tool.
0: So I think this might be a good spot. I mean, we've, we talked earlier about the sweeps. We talked a little bit about basket weeders. On- We've, we're talking about uh, these cutaway discs. All of this is kind of coming up to this point where now we can get to what you've really been focused on with your research, which is how do we get in there and start to manage the weeds that are in the row, the ones that just kill our pocketbooks when we have to send a crew out and, and do the hoeing.
1: You got it. So we, we've got the narrowest uncultivated band that, that we could manage. And now it's time for the in-row tools. And the four that I've been working with, and really the only ones I think are available, are the finger weeder, the torsion weeder, uh, your flex tine, which we talked about for blind cultivation, and also hilling, which is the oldest uh, in-row weed control there is. So maybe we could just go through those and talk about what they are and how they work. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, finger weeder. I imagine a lot of people have seen pictures of this or videos on the internet, and it's easy to see the the bright plastic fingers moving through the plant row. Um, What you don't see underneath the plastic are metal drive tines. And if you take your hand and curl your fingers up like you're holding an apple and point them down, that's these metal drive tines, and they run in the ground. And the finger weeders were originally invented by budding. And like a lot of the budding designs, the way they work is one part engages with the soil at ground speed as fast as you're driving. And that moves another part even faster. Just like in the basket weeder, we've got the front baskets that move at ground speed. And with the chain and the gearing difference, they move the back baskets even faster to give that nice crumbling. And that's what's happening with the fingers. Your metal drive tines are moving at ground speed, and they drive your fingers even faster. And of course, you can get the fingers in in different sizes. Generally, the larger they are, the more aggressive, uh, the smaller they are. Uh, the more detailed work they can do. And you can also get them in different durometers or hardnesses. And I think stecati um, also offers um, brushes you can get for really fine detail work. The main adjustments that you want to make on the fingers are two. They're a relatively simple tool. Um, one is the distance between the rubber fingers, as you can imagine, closer together or even overlap. or more aggressive. And the other thing is, down pressure on them the more down pressure the more aggressive they'll be and the less the less aggressive they'll be and so the fingers can have two different actions depending on how you're using them which i think is pretty neat Um, one is they can flick soil away and out of the row and they do that best when they're angled forward into the direction of uh travel and when the soil is drier and people describe this to me in europe and I, i didn't really get it and then I saw it this summer on some dry sand, just flicking soil and weeds out of the row. And the other thing they can do is hill soil. And for that, you'd want to adjust the, uh, the shank of the finger slightly backward at a backward angle to the direction of travel. And it'll pull soil into the row and hill up very precisely. Now, to do that best, the finger and a lot of these other in-row tools want to be used with between-row tools. So people will set sweeps or shovels to run right in front of the finger and loosen the soil so that if they're trying to heal, the soil's sitting right there ready for the finger to follow and push it into the row.
0: And I think something that's really important to talk about here that's that's not immediately obvious if you haven't seen the video, so those fingers are actually going into the row where the plants are, right?
1: Yeah. And this gets back to our first prime imperative about that size difference. Uh, Just to say again, these tools aren't magic. And if you imagine uh, giving your carrots a little tug, you know, say by now they're uh, three weeks old and they have two true leaves. And then say you give that tiny little cotyledon of a mustard weed a tug next to it. Now we're going to hope that it takes less force to pull our mustard weed out, right? Now where the magic comes in is we want to set that finger weeder So that it's applying enough force to pull out or bury that weed, but not enough force to displace our carrot. And so that's where that prime imperative comes in and where we can really exploit the difference between the crop and the weed. And
0: how hard is it to adjust these finger weeders?
1: I got to say, it's pretty easy. Um, A lot of these models have a, a single bolt. That's one thing you're going to want to look for is that all the bolts on whatever you're buying should be the same size. You don't want to have to carry five <laughs> different sizes right into in your back pocket. I'll tell you that.
0: Been there, done uh, that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A single 18 or 19 millimeter bolt, you can loosen and allow you to drop your finger weeder up or down. And then likewise, another bolt uh, on top where they mount horizontally can move them in and out to adjust your overlap. They're very easy to use. If you have them mounted correctly.
0: The other thing I I didn't realize when I first saw these is that the disc of fingers is is sitting at an angle to the soil. I want to say thirty degrees off of parallel from the soil, but then the fingers themselves actually bend and run, and they're they're rubber, so they're soft rubber. They they actually bend and run pretty much parallel to the soil.
1: Yeah, what people were telling us in Europe is that generally. You want to have those fingers adjusted until the rubber, just like you said, is flat against the ground. And that's also a good way as you develop your knowledge of in your soils, how close and how far apart you want the fingers to be on different crops and different uh, growth stages. It's nice to just always measure that distance when they're flat. Right.
0: And. And so the the finger weeders are really designed as an as a tool to uproot the weeds, um, which I know doesn't work on every weed that's out there.
1: You got that right, Chris. It uh, can also be set to hill. I just um, visited with a grower out in Western Michigan who's doing organic dry beans, and he was he was using his fingers to hill.
0: And how much hilling was he able to do with those fingers?
1: Oh, probably uh, about an inch, no more.
0: I do think that one of the things that that is oftentimes overlooked is that you can hill with sweeps and shovels as well. If you adjust those between-row weed control tools correctly, you can actually move a significant amount of dirt into the row and bury the weeds, which works really well with things like corn and beans and brassica transplants.
1: You got it. And, And likewise, with those cutaway discs... Um, you can just turn them, so instead of cutting away, they're healing, and that's that's another good way to heal. I prefer that just because as they're moving soil, they're crumbling it. And I think it does a little better job. Right,
0: right. But you know, it is a way to get into something without having to have something super fancy.
1: Really good point.
0: You can do a lot of really good in-row in weed control, and I feel like it's an opportunity that's really missed, and something that can be a weakness when you're using a wheel hoe. For example, because there aren't a lot of tools for the wheel hoe that actually do a good job of moving soil into the row,
1: yeah, yeah, i mean they're they're coming out with nicer models you know that straddle the row and and you can use hilling discs to to hill then it's really interesting, I think, is that if you look at wheel hoe models from fifty years ago or anything from the planet junior catalog, you know they they made um not only cedars but they made um, cultivation tools for anything. For They made the stuff that went on the Alice G. They made the stuff that went on the walk-behinds. They made the stuff for the wheel holes. But if you look at their old catalogs, they were making this kind of stuff 60, 70 years ago, cutaway discs, hilling gangs, low angle sweeps. I mean, they really had it figured out. We just kind of forgot about it.
0: I think that's probably the case with a lot of market farming right there. Um, mm-hmm. So what other kinds of tools, you mentioned several others that would be useful for in-row weed control?
1: Yeah, the other tool is not as popular, um, maybe for good reason. It's called the torsion weeder. And if you imagine a piece of spring steel, uh, or imagine a, a thick coil spring, and you flick it with your finger and it goes boing, boing, boing and then it returns to right where it was. And these torsion weeders are made out of a, a piece of wire of that spring steel, like a, like a flex tine, and they sit in the ground parallel to the ground. And there's two of them, and they cross right across the plant row. And so as you move forwards, the resistance of the soil against them spreads them apart. And just like the flex tine weeder, when you set them right, they get a really good vibration to them, and, uh, and they'll dislodge. The, uh, the weed roots without disturbing your crop. When they work well, they're phenomenal, but they take a lot of adjusting uh, to get them to work well. And I found they're not as consistent through different soil types as you're moving as the fingers are.
0: Well, and again, I think it's, it's worth going back and saying this is also when we're talking about in row weed control, this is where something like those flex tine weeders, the things like the Lely tine weeder or the Einbach or the Williams toolbar carrier features these flex pine weeders um those are all that's something where those fingers are doing in row weed control It's a different sort of action than what we're talking about with the finger weeders or with the torsion weeders, but it's still that same idea of trying to reduce the number of weeds that are in the row before you have to go in there with a hand hoe um so when we're looking at this ad- adjustment right I mean how I'm thinking about on my farm. You know, we grew 40 different crops, 50 different crops, relatively small amounts of each, even though we had 20 acres of vegetables. You know, every planting, it's not like I could spend 10 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet figuring out how to adjust something so that it was going to kill the weeds and not kill the plants. So, how do I go about making those adjustments quickly, well, and consistently?
1: There's definitely going to be a learning curve, Chris, and I can't say that you're going to be able to do it quickly from the outset or that you won't have to kill some plants at the outset. Every grower I talked to talked about needing some time to really get to know the tools. And as you go, it sounds like growers can develop rules of thumb. So a lot of people know that when they put a transplant in of any variety, a week to 10 days later, they can run through it with the fingers. And with their soil, they get a good feel for generally what's that tip distance between the fingers, or if they're overlapping them, they can run to go through the plants. For other crops, direct seeded things, you can get rules of thumb over time, that's your best guess, um, but you are going to have to spend some time in the field uh, responding to, to soil conditions. The grower in Western Michigan who had a large 12-row finger weeder set up for his dry beans, uh, he would spend five hours Tuning in that machine uh, every time before he used it. Now, every time it got less and less, eight hours, five hours, three hours, but he knew it was going to take him a while to tune that machine in. But like all these mechanical tools, once you get it tuned in, it's worth the time. They're going to save you time once they're working well.
0: Well, and I think that's such an important point, just with any tool investment. And my friends Jacob and Amy out in Washington State just picked up a finger weeder setup and I love that they picked it up in the fall because they're going to get a chance to figure stuff out now. And the next spring, they're going to be able to hit the ground running, having that tool set up and knowing how it actually works. Whereas I feel like a lot of times you come in in the spring and the time pressure is so severe. And if the wet spring and you've only got a limited window to get in, sometimes those tool adjustments are enough to uh, uh, make a guy cry.
1: You got it, and and you'll hear people say, oh, yeah, finger weeders, I tried them. They don't work. Well, then you want to ask, well, how are they mounted? What kind of tractor were they on? How much time did you give it to figure out how to use them? Uh, Just like the guy with the carrot up his nose, Chris, you might have the right tool, but if you're not giving yourself enough time to use it right and using it in the correct manner on the right tractor at the right speed, you can't expect it to work well.
0: Anything else that's not going to be immediately obvious about using something like a finger weeder or a torsion weeder or the other weed control tools that we've talked about?
1: Yeah, something to think about when you're getting frustrated with a tool is your soil moisture. Um, Obviously, something's not going to work in the mud, but likewise, it's not going to work very well when things are dry or crusted or even powdery. And here at the university, I've often thought to myself, man, I'd really like to run the irrigation." Uh, you know, just for 45 minutes to make these tools run better and give a better result. I can't do that. That's not something a farmer would do. But the more growers I talk to, I find that, no, some people will run the irrigation for a little bit um, before they cultivate. And it's worth it, that extra time to them because they know that the cultivation is going to be that much more effective by having the right soil moisture. And of course that also gets back to the very bottom of the pyramid which is soil health. You know, the more organic matter, the better drainage that you have in your soil, the easier it's going to be to cultivate it. I mean, everything really is connected. It, it does kind of lead
0: when you talk about everything being connected to this other really important point, which is it's one thing to get excited about the tools. And, and it's easy to go out and spend a bunch of time and a bunch of money and a bunch of energy getting the right tools and the right setup and geeking out on all of that because that is the fun stuff. But You know, so often weed control really does just come down to an issue of timing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I talked to an older farmer about how often I should cultivate. He said, whenever you think about doing it, do it. He said, you'll never regret it. And a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, you want to run through the field every seven to 10 days. And, And that makes sense. That's a good rule of thumb in terms of keeping weeds down. But people know that you never know when it's going to rain. You never know when the tractor is going to break. And so I I think it is a good rule of thumb when you have time and the conditions are right, just do it. Uh, Get up before the help comes and do it. Stay late after the help comes and do it. Uh, You're never going to regret it. Again, if you're doing everything right, if you're running your tools too deep and pruning roots, yeah, you might regret that. Um, But if you're doing nice, shallow cultivation, um, that's not something that uh, you can do too much of generally.
0: All right. And then before we turn to the lightning round, I did just want to get you to say a word about the Midwest Mechanical Weed Control Field Day that's coming up here at the end of September.
1: Uh, I I couldn't be more excited. Uh, You go to different farming conferences and there's a few tool vendors and you see, you know, a tough built cultivating tractor or you see the crest salesman And you think, well, that's nice, but is there something better out there? What's the price comparison? Is it going to work for me? And uh, the whole point of the field day is to have everything or as much as we can, mechanical weed control related in one spot. So growers can really talk to vendors and compare things. Um, There's going to be a a whole slew of cultivating tractors from older American ones to newer European ones, the newer American uh, tractors. There are going to be um, all sorts of weeding tools. A lot of the stuff that we use here at the university, um, farmers from around the Midwest are bringing in their setups. And then the, um, the tool vendors, both that are making things in the States and that are importing them from Europe are going to have things there. Uh, more than that, John Paul Cortens from New York, a very experienced vegetable grower is going to talk about the principles of cultivation, how to use the tools, how to set yourself up for success and again, more than that, and something that, that I never see you know, at a winter conference, we're going to have uh, about an acre of field demos. So people from the MSU uh, weed control team are going to be talking about how they use the tools, what we found, um, growers who are using the tools are going to talk about them and how best uh, they've learned how to use them. And also um, the vendors who are making and importing these tools and cultivating tractors are going to run them through the field. Um, already we're having about 100 growers from around the country come. And so more than just seeing all the tools and talking to vendors, I think it's also going to be a great opportunity for growers to talk to each other about what's working and what's not. So I'm very excited about and I think it's going to be a great resource for people.
0: Tell us the date that it's happening and and where that's going on.
1: Okay. That is Tuesday, September 26th, 10 in the morning to five in the evening. In Lansing, Michigan, on campus of Michigan State University,
0: and I'll put a link in the show notes for for registration. So the URL for this, uh, if you want to go directly to it, is kind of crazy. But if you if you Google Midwest Mechanical Weed Control Field Day, MSU, it's going to show up. And I'll also put the link for the for the field day webpage in the show notes for this episode. So one more thing before we before we go to the lightning round, you know we're doing this. Conversation about weed control in September, everybody's thinking about harvest, but you know if you're in the northern part of the country, what should I be doing now to set myself up for weed control next year?
1: well I'd say uh let's hope you have a, a little bit of time on your hands so you're not going full bore. Take a walk around the field with a notebook, and every farmer should know off the top of their head, Lord knows I didn't, but I can tell you now. Uh, you should know off the top of your head, what are your three most common weeds? And then your winter work is look up what are their life cycles? When do they drop their seeds? Do they spread by seeds or by their roots? And really get to know how those weeds work. And, you you know, uh, the samurais would say, know your enemy. And it's the same thing with weeds. Go out to your fields now and see what's out there and learn about it over the winter.
0: And with that, we're going to turn to the lightning round. Uh, First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round is brought to you by Storic Cold's Cool Bot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food co-op complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for just days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. What's that about 2000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have got to get your produce cold. The difference between then and now is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your cool bot warranty at no charge store at cold.com. So Sam, what's your favorite tool?
1: I would say uh, I, I am kind of a Luddite and, and I really enjoy Amish culture. And I think it's fair to say that my favorite tool since working with all these cultivating machines is my little Stanley 12 foot tape measure. And, uh, it's always in my clip to my pocket, and I, I flip it out all the time to see how big is the carrot, how big is the weed, how deep is my tool running, uh, how far apart are my fingers. And uh, it's really allowed me to, to make the kind of observations that give me some certainty uh, about how these tools should be used.
0: You know, we actually got to the point on our farm after a, a couple of times where clamps had wiggled loose, Where where we had as part of our setting up to go seed checklist, was to check the spacing on the cedars, make sure everything was at exactly 15 inches, and to do the same thing on the cultivating as well. What's your favorite crop to grow?
1: (laughs) Well, of course, I'm partial to carrots because I've been growing them for two seasons straight, all carrots all the time. Uh, I guess at this point, I'm I'm pretty attached to them. I I really enjoy popcorn, too. It's such a fun plant, but uh, carrots are just uh, such a challenge. And at the same time, they're just so damn tasty.
0: And finally, if if you could go back in time and tell your beginning weed control self one thing, what would it be?
1: I'd, I'd tell myself two things. I remember early on getting very frustrated with these tools. And I would tell myself, as I've said throughout our conversation, they're not magic. And that I need to do all the steps to create success. I can't just plop these tools in a in the field and expect them to work. I need to have a perfect seed bed. I need to have healthy plants. I need to have that size differential and, uh, to really concentrate on, on those basics. And more than that, I'd tell myself to, to take the time to really observe at least me. I'm too quick to look at something and say, Oh, it's not working and blame something else. Uh, it's really been good for me to take the time and stop and scratch my head and say, why isn't this working? Let me try this. Damn it, this isn't working either. Let me try this. And um, giving myself the time to make those adjustments, which I know can be be hard to make that time, but it, it really seems to make all the difference.
0: Sam, thank you so much for all of this great information about weed control today. Thanks for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Absolutely, Chris. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.
0: All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 136 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show, including lots of links for all the things that we talked about, at com. And you do that by looking on the episodes page there or just searching for Tilton. That's T I L T O N. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk behind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmer to farmer dot com. If you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmer to farmer slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.